The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Next week's sermon will introduce our VBS series about Jesus's I Am statements uh, that we'll look at next week. This morning's sermon is going to help set the context for next week, so I guess it's an introduction to an introduction, um, but hopefully there's a little more to the sermon than that, because we're going to see at the end of our text this morning a very famous command that Jesus gave his disciples. It's a command to love one another as he loved them. Sacrificial love would prove to this world that those men were truly his disciples. This was important for a lot of reasons. One, which we'll see today, is because not every man who looked like he was part of the group actually was. Not every man who appeared to be following Jesus was actually doing that. One of the men that night went out from among the group and betrayed Jesus. As we look at these verses this morning, I want you to sort of notice the contrast between Judas and his actions, and then the next, sort of the last half of the sermon, what the actions of a true disciple should look like. And I want to challenge you this morning to let your love prove the genuineness of your discipleship instead of letting sinful actions betray who you claim to be. John chapter 13, verse 21 through 30. It's the final night of Jesus' life, and he has just washed the disciples' feet to give them that great lesson in humble service. And let's pick up in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel... Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. The fact that Jesus is troubled in verse 21, shows us his humanity. And it's very understandable, knowing what he is about to face that night and into the next day. Later that night, he will be betrayed by Judas. He will be arrested by a mob, and he will, he will be arrested and, and taken into what we call just kangaroo courts, farces of a trial held against him by the Jewish leaders. He will be taken to Pilate the next morning where Pilate cannot find anything wrong with him, but he still beats him and crucifies him. 
Jesus knows that is coming. And as, as painful as a process as that would be anyway, it's a process that's going to begin with one of his own men betraying him. So he's troubled. And he tells his disciples that one of them would be the betrayer. And he uses this expression, or John does in verse 21, this truly, truly expression. Sometimes you see Jesus say words like this, verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you. John is the only gospel writer that doubles up that expression. Truly, truly. Now everything Jesus said was true, right? Of course. But when Jesus says truly, truly, you better sit up straight. It's time to pay attention. Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And they had no idea who it would be. They had no clue. The word uncertain in verse 22, or your translation may say doubting or at a loss. It's a word that literally means to be without resource. They didn't know what to think. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. They are worried and confused and shocked all at the same time. Other gospel accounts record that all of the men questioned Jesus because they were scared it might be them. Is it I? Lord, is it going to be me? But you know what none of them said? Oh, I bet it's Judas, isn't it? I knew there was something off about that guy. That's how good Judas was at blending in with the group. Nobody suspected him. But Peter, we know Peter and his, uh, his personality, he's determined to get to the bottom of this. And so in verse 24, we read that he motioned to John, or he, he gestured, he beckoned to John, who was leaning on Jesus, to ask Jesus who he was talking about. Jesus then told John that he would dip a piece of bread and hand it to the betrayer. So Jesus took some bread that would have been unleavened and he broke it and he dipped that piece into what we would call a fruit puree that would have been on one of the dishes. And he dipped that into that puree and he handed it to Judas. Now on the one hand, that was the answer to John's question, right? We know that. Judas was the betrayer. On the other hand, though, this was an act of love and friendship on the behalf of Jesus. In that culture, when the host of a feast took bread and dipped it in something like that and handed it to somebody, it was a friendly thing. It was a loving thing. Think about this. The very final thing that Jesus ever gave Judas was a sign of his love and friendship towards him. Judas, sadly, though, instead of falling on his face, asking forgiveness and receiving the love of Christ, he decided not to stray from the path that he was already going down. And he decided to be an instrument of the devil. And John records this very sad statement that Satan entered him. It's the only time in John's gospel where the word Satan is used. Now, Satan may have possessed Judas, but he wasn't in control. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. Notice that it was Jesus who commanded Judas to go out and do what he was doing quickly. Jesus is in total control. And guess what? Judas obeyed, didn't he? He went out. John said he immediately went out. Now, the rest of the disciples assumed that Jesus was sending Judas out for more supplies or to give something to the poor. That was a common practice during the Passover season was to uh, give gifts to the poor. 
Doesn't that seem strange to us that they misunderstood this? I know that sometimes they miss the lesson and they miss things, but this seems to be cluelessness on a different level, right? How do they not understand this? And there's at least a couple reasons why, and it makes a lot of sense when we understand a few things. One reason they didn't understand everything that was going on is sort of the way they were arranged. And I'll talk about that. And another is just the discretion of Peter and John and, and Jesus as well. This is what we call the Last Supper sometimes. And you may have seen Leonardo da Vinci's very famous painting where all the men are on the same side of a table. That's a really odd way to sit at a dinner, right? Where nobody's facing each other, everybody's facing this way. It's a really famous painting, but it's very inaccurate, okay? They wouldn't have been seated at a table anyway. During this time, their culture, they would have had what we call a really low table. And they would have been seated in a U-shape around this really low table, reclining on their stomachs or on their sides where they could reach into the middle of the U and reach down onto this table. Okay, so they're all seated in this U, laying on their stomachs or on their sides, head near the center of the U, and the arrangement of the men is pretty fascinating. I'm gonna do my U here so you can follow along here. On my right, the top right of the U would have been John. Okay, nobody else is on John's right. And John is seated in a spot that was a very, um, a very honorable position because he was next to Jesus who would have been in the next seat because Jesus was the host of the feast. So he would have sat there. On Judas's, uh, I'm sorry, on Jesus's left though. So we have John, Jesus, Judas would be on Jesus's left and that seat during this feast was actually called the seat of honor. The night Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus had him at the highest honor at the feast. That's fascinating to me. Some scholars uh, make the point that um, likely Judas was given this seat of honor because he was the only one of the men not from Galilee. He was actually from Judea. So he is placed to the left of Jesus, Jesus in the seat of honor. The rest of the disciples then would have just been seated around the rest of the U. And the last seat, probably Peter. And this seat was called the servant's seat. And the reason that, that scholars think Peter was on the end here is because then he's directly across from John. And what does Peter do to get this whole thing started? Notice verse 24 again, I believe it is. Simon Peter motioned to John. So he has to be across from him in some way to be able to make this gesture. So, I mean, just, it's funny almost knowing Peter's personality. He's, he's got to know this. So, psst. John, you're sitting right by him, right? So he makes this gesture. And it's interesting, and this is part of the reason that it, they don't understand everything. Peter did not stand up and, you know, bang his glass and say, Lord, let's stop the proceedings. We want to know right now in front of everybody who the betrayer is. He motions to John. This is sort of a discreet thing. John then is right next to Jesus, leaning against him. Who is it? Everybody doesn't see this going on. And then when Jesus tells John, it's who I dip this bread and give it to. And when he dipped it and gave it to Judas, nobody is thinking, because that is a common thing a host would do at a feast is to take bread and break it and give it to a guest. So sirens and alarms are not going off when Jesus does this. 
I believe probably John's the only one who heard Jesus give this answer. Jesus may have been the only one who heard John's question. It's very discreet, and the arrangement and the discretion is why the disciples don't understand what's going on. Sometimes we give them a bad rap, but I don't think there's anything for them to misunderstand here. It was just, it was a quiet thing. I believe probably before John could even wrap his mind around it, definitely before he could relay things to Peter and the other disciples, Jesus has told Judas, go do it quickly, and Judas left. And then Jesus keeps talking, so there's no time to stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Why did we let him go? Notice the end of verse 30. John wrote at the end of verse 30 that when Judas went out, that it was night. That's not a useless detail. It is very simple and very profound at the same time. It was literally nighttime, okay? It was late. It might have been past your bedtime. It was dark outside. But John adds details like this throughout his gospel at strategic times to sort of mirror what we might call the, the spiritual scene. So this is also a desperate expression about Judas's heart, about his spiritual state, about what he is about to do when he goes and betrays his Lord, who's really not his Lord. I want you to just think about how sad this is that for over three years, Judas followed the light of the world, but gave his heart to the prince of darkness instead. When he left to betray Jesus, it was night. There's a very important application I want to make before we move on to sort of the second part of this sermon and we look at that command about loving. Thinking about Judas being with these men. A relationship with God does not come through osmosis. And what I mean by that is just being around spiritual people doesn't make you spiritual. Having Christian friends or Christian parents does not mean that you are a Christian. Coming to church and surrounding yourself with, with people here who are saved does not mean that you are saved. Judas was around Jesus and the disciples for three years. He was part of the group. He was so trusted that he was the treasurer. He heard all the sermons. He, he heard all the parables. He witnessed the miracles. He saw Jesus feed the thousands. He was one of the disciples that served the thousands. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave, but in his heart, it was night. Judas died and went to hell because he never trusted in Jesus as his savior. So please understand that you need Jesus to save you. And that doesn't happen just by hanging around saved people. Now, I don't mean that you want to associate yourself closely with evil people who are evil influences. The right crowd can be a good influence on you. Hopefully it is. The point is that nobody else can make your decision about trusting Jesus except you. There's an old saying that I love. God has no grandchildren, only children. Don't trust the faith of your parents. 
Don't trust the faith of your friends or your family and think, well, you know, all of my family and friends go to church. Surely God's going to give me a little credit for that. Judas's friends were the first church. Judas knew the first pastor personally. But because he did not trust Pastor Jesus as his Savior, he died and went to hell for his unbelief. So please, don't be comfortable being here just because you're here. And don't feel safe being here and being around saved people. You need to know that if you are lost and have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, you have to make that personal decision. If the Holy Spirit's convicting you today, Humble yourself, submit to him, ask forgiveness, ask for Jesus to save you, and he will, he always does. He loves you. So after Judas, this false disciple, went out into the night, Jesus said a whole lot to his true disciples, including the famous command to love one another that we're gonna see in just a moment, and a command that if we obey, will prove to be unlike Judas. It'll prove the genuineness of our discipleship. So let's look at verse 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When Judas left, it was night, and his betrayal of Jesus is the epitome of mankind at our worst. But even during that darkest time, God is so sovereign and so good that he was glorified right then. Did you notice what Jesus said in verse 31? Now, now is the Son of Man glorified. That may surprise us if we, if we actually think about this. I would expect Jesus to be glorified at some victorious point in the future some point after his death, some point after the resurrection, maybe when he returns in flaming fire, like Paul talked about in 2 Thessalonians. Jesus said he was glorified right then. Judas is betraying him, and he is about to be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified, and yet he is saying he's glorified. Isn't that strange? Those things are shameful and painful and embarrassing. Crucifixion is the most humiliating and embarrassing thing possible in the first century. It was glorious too though, wasn't it? It's glorious because that was when the Son of God was showing his unsearchable love for you and his unwavering commitment to the Father. He loved you enough to go through what he faced. That's glorious. Now, verse 32 isn't meant to be a tongue twister, but it does sort of answer the question of Jesus' future glorification. Yes, he was glorified right then, 
But since he brought glory to the Father, the Father would glorify him in the future as well. Paul wrote about that in Philippians, very famous verses in Philippians 2, verse 9 and 10. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Throughout eternity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will receive glory. But that didn't mean he wasn't glorified right then. But the reality of the moment and the pain and the separation that was about to happen, it meant that he would no longer be with his men on this earth. And he began to prepare them for that. And in the gentlest way possible, he starts this, what we call the final discourse, in verse 33 by calling them little children. These are grown men. These are grown men who left their, who left their jobs and left their family some for follow this other man around, and he's calling them little children now. This was not condescending. This was not belittling. It had nothing to do with their age. This was a term of affection, a term of warmth, a term of, of love and care. And when you think about what the word children means, it emphasized their relationship like a parent with a child. In fact, the word uh, that's used here, the, a verb form of this word was often used in conjunction with a woman who is ready to give birth. So on this most confusing night, this most troubling night these men have ever faced, hearing about a betrayal, hearing about his departure, he begins to teach them um, and to, to help them and prepare them by reminding them of their relationship. Nothing that they saw him face the next 24 hours or nothing they would ever see or face would change the fact that they had a relationship with Jesus. Little children. Jesus was going away. But he wasn't going to leave them as orphans, right? He's going to say that in the next chapter. Jesus is going to the Father. I want you to turn to chapter 7 for just a moment. Jesus has talked about going back to the one who sent him several times in John's gospel. He's saying similar thing to his disciples here. In John chapter 7, look at verse 33 and 34. Verse 33, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am, you cannot come. Now look at verse, uh, look at chapter 8 and verse 21. Chapter 8 and verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now both of these times when he said this to unbelieving Jews, they misunderstood what he meant. They were trying to figure out where he was going. Back in chapter 13, Jesus says something similar to the disciples, right? Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. 
There's some similarities, but there's a, a, a couple of huge differences. First, by calling them little children, Jesus' tone is a lot different than it was with the unbelieving Jews when he said, you're going to die in your sins. But these men are his little children. And he also told the unbelieving Jews that they would die in their sins. Jesus did not tell his disciples that. These 11 would go where he was going, just not yet. Just not yet. They still had more time on earth. They still had more work to do. And so Jesus gave them one extremely important command in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's a very simple command, isn't it? Simple enough for a toddler to understand. But it's one of those really complex truths at the same time. Love one another. Jesus called it a new commandment, didn't he? It's kind of strange too, isn't it? Love has been commanded by God to mankind long before that night. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 states, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Leviticus 19 states, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You may remember from our recent sermon series that when a lawyer came and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He responded by quoting these verses about loving God and loving others. So why did Jesus label this as a new commandment when it was thousands of years old? Well, the word new here does not necessarily indicate newness of time. It could, but there was another word that John could have used to more naturally talk about time. This word has the idea of a new quality or a new nature, um, a new characteristic, we might say. Think of it like this. It's an old commandment, but it's wrapped in a new package. It's got a new nature to it. Say, so what is that? Well, notice the end of verse 34. As I have loved you. That's the new quality that's involved in this old commandment to love. Think about that. God has always demanded love. But now that Jesus Christ has come and demonstrated to us what love truly is, the complete extreme sacrificial love of God to the highest degree, he has now commanded us to love one another in that way. That's a weighty command. Because how did Jesus love us? He loved us sacrificially. He loved us unconditionally. He loved us even when we weren't worthy of being loved. What did Paul say to the Romans? God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are all sinful people. We're not worthy of having Jesus Christ die for us. But he chose to love us anyway. He didn't ask us to straighten up. And if you'll do that, you'll learn my love. I'll die for you if you'll get your act right. He chose to sacrifice himself for you. 
for your good, even while you were bad. Now, by extension, we have been commanded to love each other with that same love. So even if, and I should probably say even when, we don't deserve that love from one another, when we're not earning it, so what? You love each other anyway, because that's what Christ did for you. He loved you at your worst. He made the decision, made the choice to love you. And that, that thought digs deep into what true love is anyway. Y'all have heard me say similar things before that, that love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's what this world wants us to think love is, that it's some involuntary emotion. Love is not something that you find on the inside of a Hallmark card. Love is a matter of the will. It is an exercise decision. It's a choice to put someone else's needs ahead of your own, even if it hurts you even if they don't deserve it? Will you make the choice to help them, to care for them, to support them, even if it hurts you, even if they can't pay you back? Aren't you glad that Christ loved you more than he feared the pain of the cross? Aren't you glad he put your needs ahead of his own? He made a choice. That's what love is. It's a choice. Consider this. The very fact that we are commanded to love proves that it's a choice and not a feeling. It would be really tough to command someone to feel a certain way. But I can command you to do something. Love is actions. Now, I'm not saying there's no emotion in love. But genuine love is voluntary. So your decision is, will I obey or not? Will I obey and love my brothers and sisters in Christ or will I disobey? When Jesus loved you, it involved actions. He didn't just say, I love you. He proved it. He demonstrated it. John would later write in 1 John three eighteen, little children, same word Jesus used, by the way, I could preach a whole other sermon on that. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You can tell me that you love me all day long, but what's our old saying about actions? Actions speak louder than words. I would much rather you show me that you love me than tell me that you love me. Now, both is okay, but definitely show me. Loving one another with the sacrificial love of Christ. It will produce a lot of godly things in your life. A lot of godly things in our church. But there's something specific that Christ said would happen if we do this. Note verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving each other will show the world that you are truly a disciple of Jesus. If you want this world to know that you're a Christian, and you should, then one of, if not the most important thing you need to do is to love fellow believers. 
It's a mark of true discipleship. It's also a really strong aspect of our witness, isn't it? When other people see our love for one another, they should be curious about how a random group of people who live in different neighborhoods, in different cities, who have different jobs, who have no reason to be together other than Jesus, why they have such a bond and a connection? Why are they so sacrificial towards one another? Why are they helping each other so much? That should be a great witness to this world. So I want to challenge you today to consider what this world sees in you. Hey, Brother Matt, I came to church today. Who cares? So did Judas. For three years. I know that hurts. When people looked at Judas, they saw a man who was always with Jesus. He was always part of the disciples. His car always left on Sunday morning. It wasn't in the driveway. He went to church today. And yet he went out and betrayed the Lord. It was night. Don't live your life like that. Don't be here worshiping God, singing songs, listening to sermons, and being around Christians, and then walk out the door and betray it all by living in a sinful way that brings no honor and glory to Christ. Don't look the part and then go out into the night. Now, Judas was never saved to begin with, so understand there is a difference between his betrayal and a genuinely saved person not living right you cannot lose your salvation because of the grace of God. But when you go out and betray it all by living a sinful life, it hurts your witness, it hurts your testimony, it hurts this church, it hurts the cause of Christ when his followers do not obey his teachings. Let's not be one of those churches. Let's not be those Christians. Let our love Prove the genuineness of our discipleship instead of letting sinful actions betray who we claim to be. I want you to think about that night, how troubling it was for those disciples and what they would face in the next years, the rest of their lives. They would face persecution. It would not be easy for those men to continue to serve Jesus Loving one another with that sacrificial love of Christ would help them. And I can say the same thing for us, North Bryant. This world is changing. This country's changing. We enjoy freedom right now, but it would not surprise me in our lifetimes if the Bible is banned in America or if the message of Jesus Christ is considered hate speech. It already is in a lot of places. We can't stop. We can't stop meeting. We can't stop preaching the truth. And we will need to love one another to help each other. We need each other. It's difficult to serve God in a world that hates you for doing it. But let's love one another with this incredible new quality that we have seen in Jesus' life and place the needs of everyone else ahead of your own because that's what he did for you. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer.
Father, thank you so much for the love that Jesus Christ has shown to us. And I pray that you will help us to humble ourselves and be obedient to this command to love one another in that same manner. Forgive us when we fail to do that. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. I pray that you will be with our church. With each individual, Lord, I pray that we will love as we're supposed to so that this world sees that. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.